Hi guys, and welcome back to the You Don't Wanna Know podcast. So, first off, I want to apologize because I'm a filthy freaking liar. I promised you guys another episode last week and I did not deliver. But I think you guys will be happy with the outcome because I found an awesome case. Oh gosh, I hate when I do that. It's not awesome. A very, very interesting case that needs to be known. That's what I found. So I literally tried as hard as I could to finish finish researching by the end of last week and I couldn't do it. I couldn't even deliver like I had to keep researching and go until... Literally yesterday, I finished researching. Alright, another part I have to apologize for. Uh, You probably can hear it. My nose is taking over my entire body. I'm very nasally, and it's very frustrating. And for the final thing I need to apologize for, I think my mic is busted. I don't know what's going on with it. It's not reading. I'm actually talking pretty loudly. Um, It doesn't sound the same. And I'm going to ask my buddy Nick about it and see if he, like, thinks it's broken or I'm just doing something stupid. I don't know. Hopefully he'll give me some insight because I am talking very loudly and it's barely reading it. So, not great and the quality does not sound as good as it normally does. So, without further ado, let's talk about a show. Normally, it's a movie, but today it needs to be a show. It is August 1st, 2022. And 30 Rock is officially off of Netflix. I tried so hard. I think I only had two weeks. I tried so hard to finish it. It was coming off the air, or not off the air, but off of Netflix, July 31st, and I couldn't do it. I think I made it halfway into season five, and there's seven seasons. So I just want to throw it out there. If you need a show to binge watch, I don't know what it's on anymore, but 30 Rock is phenomenal. It's so funny, and Tina Fey is so underrated. You guys know who made the movie Mean Girls? Tina Fey. You know who was in the movie Mean Girls? Tina Fey. You know who was in or is in and like the star of 30 Rock? Tina Fey. Tina Fey is so funny, and she doesn't have to be like raunchy and be funny or like make fun of herself like, to a a certain degree, like we all do, you know, everyone does, but, like, continuously to be funny. She is just a funny person, and I personally believe that she has broken barriers for women in that industry, so thank you, Tina Fey, for everything that you've given to me. Thank you for 30 Rock, because it is amazing. So, without further ado, my case, or the case, I should say. The case of the town of Ada. Yes, a town. And no, it's not a scary, a scary, spooky story. It's about two girls, but it's gets so deep that it it's just so much more than that. So the two girls' names are Debbie Carter and Denise Haraway. Now, I don't know if those names sound familiar to you, but when I was researching this case, the entire time I was like, I knew all this stuff. How did I know all this stuff? because I'm into true crime. And if you're into true crime, you probably have heard about the book The Innocent Man. And The Innocent Man is about, well, essentially, it's all this information that I'm about to spill out to you, because holy crap, this is an insane case. 
just everything that happens in this town within, like, well, I guess the girls, nah, I'm gonna ruin it. I'm just gonna talk about it, so I don't ruin it. Okay, so it starts off with Debbie Carter. Debbie was a fierce and picky person who was full of life. She was a people person, but quiet, which is very interesting, because you don't really find that. Um, very modest, and had very good morals, and she was always smiling. Debbie really didn't annoy anyone. She wasn't on anyone's bad side. She didn't have any enemies, and she was best friends with her mom, Peggy, but her nickname was Peppy, because it you just have to. That's an awesome nickname for someone named Peggy, and I love it, so I appreciate that. When her mom married her dad in 1959, her dad's name is Charles, uh, they moved to the town of Ada, and everyone moved there with her, because that's how much they loved each other, and that's how close their family was. Peppy had three daughters, uh, daughters, jeez, it's like it's from the south, um, the first daughter's name was Darla, and she was born in 1960, the second daughter was Debbie, and Debbie was born in 1961, and the last daughter was Leanna, or Leona, I don't know how to pronounce it, 1963. That's very interesting because I really didn't find anything on these other two daughters. Um, maybe they just didn't want to be in the light anymore after the case happened. Who knows? But after high school, uh, Debbie, she wanted to be independent, so she moved out and she got a job, and she started working at this bar called The Coach Light, and that was where all the kids went to drink and dance and all that stuff. So she was on her own, she had her own apartment, and she was just living her best life. But it was funny because the people that went into her apartment, they felt like it was an apartment for a really big kid because she still had like stuffed animals and like pink posters and stuff like that in her apartment. So I just really appreciate that. Like she grew up, but she still held on to her young side. Like she stayed gold. Pony boy, if you get the reference. So she moved into that apartment on October 8th, and unfortunately, Debbie was murdered on October 8th. So she only lived there for two months. So on that day, on October, October 8th, uh, one of Debbie's friends saw her car in the driveway, and she wanted to see her because, like I said, everyone liked Debbie. So she started walking up the stairs to Debbie's apartment because it's not like an apartment building. It's like a house that had like one level was one apartment and then it was a stack on top. So she had that top stack and she, her friend had to walk up the stairs to get to Debbie's place. So she started hearing like really loud music and she got worried. And when she got to the top of the steps, she saw glass on the front, por front porch so she called to Debbie and didn't hear anything. She started walking inside the apartment, and that's when she found Debbie. And her friend was very frantic, didn't know what to do for a minute. She had to gather herself, and she was like, I gotta call Debbie's mom. So she called the mom, and the mom, for some reason, her car wouldn't start. So she's calling her sister, she's calling her friends, but no one's picking up. So her mom just starts walking to Debbie's house. She's walking and she's walking and she's freaking out because she doesn't know what's happening. And she's literally like praying to Debbie, like, Debbie, it's going to be fine. Just hold on. I'm coming for you, Deb. Like, don't worry about it. You'll be okay. Just hold on for me. 
she's walking and she's walking and all of a sudden she sees her sister driving with one of her friends and Debbie, Debbie's mom, Peggy, stops the car and that's when she just breaks down. She falls to her knees because she's like, this is not good. This is really, really, really not good. So the detective on the case uh, was Dennis Smith, who was the senior detective. He was the senior detective. There we go. And had a really good reputation. And he actually knew Debbie. He had a personal connection with her. His daughter went to school with her. Now, I almost think that it's a bad idea to have that personal connection. But it's not a big town. And it's probably really hard to find someone or, like, a detective that wouldn't know. Plus, I know with, like, doctors and, like, surgery, you're not supposed to operate on the family. That makes sense to me. So I don't know if that's a thing for police officers, too. Uh, I don't know. But having Debbie and his daughter be friends at school, it just lit a fire under him, which is a good thing. So here we go. This is going to get a little tricky, guys. So strap in. This is rough. Debbie's body was naked, and she had a cord around her neck. On her back, was written in blood, was Duke Graham. On her chest, it said die. On the wall was the name Jim Smith, will be next. On the table, it said don't look for us or else. And four was spelled F-O-R-E. And else was spelled E-A-L-S-E. They also found a bloody print on the wall, but they found it wasn't Debbie's. And Debbie was raped. This is not great, guys. So they found a ketchup bottle that they were pretty sure was used on her because they found the cap inside of her. Her uh, lips were completely swollen there was a wash rag stuffed down her throat, and the detectives said that the her lips were like hamburger meat because she was trying to get the wash rag to come out because she was a fighter. Now, um, they're pretty sure, obviously, they, they used the, ra the cord um, to choke her, but they're pretty sure that he also, or she, whoever the killer was, used um, her personalized belt. So this is the really tough part. Um, the mom bought her both that personalized belt that said Debbie on it. It was a red belt. She absolutely loved it. And also the cord that um, it was for an electric blanket. The mom bought that too, Peggy. So that, that just made it really hard for Peggy once she realized those things. So like I said, the detectives were on fire, they were ready to go, they were ready to break down doors. So the first people they looked into, which in my opinion is correct, Jim, Smith, and Duke, uh, but they both had alibis, so that was a no-go. And Dennis was just overwhelmed with what was going on in this case. So Dennis called the Oklahoma... Oklahoma's Bureau of Investigation to help, which brought in Gary Rogers, who was, like, part of the Oklahoma Police Department, like, not just specific to town, but the whole state. Then, um, Bill Peterson, he was the district, district attorney, 
and he got all the info that Dennis and Gary were sending him for a potential future trial. So after a while, there was just really no movement. They couldn't really find too many suspects. It didn't, like, fizzle out, but it just kind of went cold. But they still had it in the back of their minds, and they were still trying to pursue it. Then one night, April 28th, 1984, a gas station worker had disappeared. So her name was Denise Haraway. She was a very sweet girl, but there wasn't a whole lot of information on her. She was in college at this point, and she was working at that gas station to help with her college bills and just get her through that. She was just said to be a very, very nice girl, very hardworking. Um, she just constantly had a job. Uh, one of her teachers said that she worked for her as a student aide, and she just said that she was just one of the sweetest girls she'd ever met. So Denise was working the night shift, and she really did not enjoy the night shift at all, which I can't imagine any young girl would want to work that shift. That gas station didn't have any alarms, and she would actually get phone calls, threatening phone calls at night. And if I were that girl's friend, or that girl's, like, I don't even know, anything to do with that girl, if I was a person she had a, an assignment with that day and she told me this if I was her parent if I was her sibling anything and she told me yeah sometimes I get phone calls in the middle of my shift but it's whatever I'd be like no it's not whatever you need to get out of there and never work that shift again or better yet get a different job like at a different gas station just anything get away from that because that is terrifying so she did not this gas station was called the McNally's Gas Station. And this is a really small town, so people knew the McNally's Gas Station. But these guys were going in, they were heading towards um, a poker game or whatever. So they came to get smokes, and they came to get some change for the poker game. Gene Welch was the man driving, and he waited in his car while one of his nephews, Lenny, went in, and it was 8.30 at night. Well, as Lenny's walking in, he said that he saw a man and a woman, like, kind of walking side by side, get into, like, a light gray pickup truck, and they both went into the passenger side and drove away. So Lenny walks in, and he's looking around, getting, like, his cigarettes or whatever, however it worked back then, um, and then he goes to check out, and he realizes that there's no one there. So he just looks around and he realizes there's literally no one in the gas station. So he kind of freaks out. He runs outside to his uncle and his brother, I'm assuming it's his brother, and they call the cops, thank goodness. Well, come to find out, a few hours later, at another gas station, Karen Weiss, the worker of a different gas station, um, she saw a couple of people, two boys, and she just had a really bad feeling about them. They really scared her. And she found out about this and um, contacted the police about it, and she could actually provide a composite sketch. Versus Gene and his nephews, they didn't really get a good look at the guy, um, so they couldn't really help out that much. But when Gene saw the composite, composite sketch, he said he thought it looked a lot like the person that he saw. As you might imagine, this would put a lot of pressure on the police because it's not just 
one murdered girl, which is horrible, but now it's a murdered girl and a missing girl in the same town just barely a year and a half later. So yeah, that would put so much heat on the police. So they started looking right away. And a man named Billy Charlie was said to have looked a lot like one of the sketches. Unfortunately, he had an alibi. So then they moved to the next person who looked a lot like a sketch, and that was Tommy Ward. So they went and found Tommy and brought him in for questioning. And Tommy gave a full confession. There's tapes and everything. And Tommy talked about how he went out the night with a Odell Titsworth and a Caro Fontenot. Now, Odell Titsworth was already known by the police as not the best character. Uh, Carl Fontenot, he was also known by the police, but it wasn't like nearly as bad as Odell. Basically, what happened from Tommy's confession, he, um, Odell, and Carl all went to that gas station, and they went to go rob it. Odell actually went in, and Tommy and Carl were standing by the gas pump. Odell uh, basically threatened Denise and grabbed her arm and put her into the truck, and he went right after her in the passenger side. She was wearing this light-colored, almost white blouse shirt type of deal. It had ruffles on the collar and on the sleeves, and they had these cute little bluish lavender flowers on it. So they drove Denise to the power plant, and the reason why they did this is because they robbed the place, and they didn't want any witnesses. So they drove Denise to the power plant, and that's kind of where it went downhill. Odell was essentially like the ringleader and everything, the way Tommy described it. He raped Denise, and they all were stabbing her, but Odell just did most of the work. So at the end of the confession... Um, the police decided to bring in Carl at this point, and Carl came into the police station and essentially kind of told the same story, or very similar story. Carl did say that Tommy raped Denise as well, but same thing, Odell was the ringleader, she was wearing a blouse with the little lavender blue flowers, and they all were stabbing her and killing her. And Tommy also said this too, they took her to this old abandoned home and put her in the floorboards and burned the home down. So at the end of Tommy's confession, the police went to get Odell Titsman. And as they're knocking on the door, they say, here for Odell, and Odell's mother actually opens the door, and she's like, what do you want? What could you possibly want with my son? And they say she, they, that Odell Titsman had um, kidnapped and potentially murdered the Denise Haraway. And she's like, that is literally not possible because you goons broke his arm like two days ago and he's been in bed all day because he can't do anything because he has a broken arm. So this is true. The police broke Odell Titsman's arm and he was put in the hospital and he literally couldn't even like sleep laying down. He had to sleep in a chair because for some reason his arm was that messed up. I don't, I can't really picture that. But then again, I've never actually broken my arm, so I don't know. But that gave Odell an alibi, and that put a huge hole in both of their stories. So the police just figured, like, hey, they made it up. Odell wasn't there. They just wanted to screw him over or something. 
They also knew that Tommy and Carl weren't the brightest of kids, so Tommy just didn't grow up in the best area with the best people, but Carl had it pretty bad. Well, Carl was a little bit slower. Um, he didn't always have a place to stay or food to eat, which is really sad, and his father was horrible. Now, I don't know if this is true. They put this as fact, so I like I have no idea, but it was said that Carl's father had a bunch of animals and he would perform bestiality in front of Carl. And also, Carl's mother was killed in front of him. So just all around horrible for Carl. So he just has not had good luck and it's no surprise that he fell into the group of guys that he did. At the end of both interrogations of Tommy and Carl, the police actually asked them if they had been treated fairly and all this stuff, and both of them were very calm, and they were like, yeah, we were great. But at the end of Tommy's, he goes, I knew I would not have done it if I, was, if I wasn't drunk, because I thought it was just a dream. So basically he's saying, like, I was drunk and I thought I was dreaming. So when Carl got locked up, he said, I'm glad they're locking me up because I won't have to worry where I'm going to sleep or where I'm going to get my next meal. And that's actually a quote from one of his friends who was locked up at the same time. And that's like the weird part about this case is a lot of the people talking about it, they would get jailhouse confessions because they were in jail at that point. So Saying it out loud, it seems bad, but it's just, it's weird because, like, that's just not the people I'm nor normally around. So Tommy and Carl went on trial for robbery and kidnapping and murder on September 24th of 85, so a little bit more than a year later. And Karen testified that without a doubt, it was Tommy and Carl that scared her that night, and Karen was the other gas station attendant that gave the police sketches. They also had a jailhouse informant. Her name was Terry Holland. She was brought in as well, and she said that she overheard either Tommy or Carl having a conversation about Denise's murder. And the final piece of evidence was the confessions tapes. What really tied it all together in a bow was Chris Ross. He was the assistant district attorney to Bill Peterson. So he gave, like, one of the closing arguments, and he explained that the third person, who they put the label on as Odell, Odell Titsworth, was actually them and the actions they deemed, like, the worst that they didn't want to take responsibility for. And this is just a very common thing that happens, um, especially, like, when people are on drugs and they do something horrible. They don't want to admit that it was them. So Ross, Chris Ross, made Tommy Ward the ringleader because he was the one that kind of told them where to go and he lived really, really close to the power plant. He actually lived like maybe three blocks away. So at the end of the trial, even though there was nobody found, they were found guilty. And there was testimony or people saying, um, interviews with people saying, they thought that this was all one joke and that Denise Hairway was going to be walking in at any minute. Obviously, that didn't happen, and Tommy and Carl were guilty, brought to jail. Nice and easy, really quick. So the cops were like, let's do it again. But 
with every story, there's another side. So, let's hear Tommy's side of the story after he realized what just happened. So, rewind back to when they had the composite sketches and one of them looked like Tommy Ward. The police go to Tommy as he's backing out of his driveway and they stop him. And they go to Tommy and they say, You've been in the Ada your entire life, right? You can help us identify this person, right? A couple composite sketches, whatever, you know. You've seen everybody around here, so you recognize them, right? And Tommy's like, you know what? Yeah, I have been in Ada my entire life. And, you know, you're probably right. If I did recognize, if, or if anyone would recognize them, it was probably me. But I did see your composite sketches, and I didn't recognize them. So I don't think I'd be much help. And the police are like, you know what? No, Tommy, 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 come on. Tommy. We have better sketches at the police station. Why don't you come? We'll show you. We'll show you the composite sketches. You can take a look, see if you recognize anyone. So Tommy, being the great guy he is, he's like, okay, yeah, sure, of course, I can help you out with that. So he goes into the station. He sits down and he never sees any other composite sketches. And they explain to him how he is the one that looks like the composite sketch. And Tommy's like, you know, I don't know what you mean. Like, I didn't do anything. I was at a party that night. I didn't do anything wrong. I, I don't know what to tell you. And this started at 10 a.m. But at 6 p.m., 6 p.m., they started rolling the tapes. And what they recorded was not a willing confession, but Tommy describing a dream and information that one could assume allegedly the police fed to him. To take it a step further, the police went to the area that Tommy said that um, the shack was, and they found a concrete slab, and they're like, oh, perfect, like, another check mark off the box. Well, then the owner of that property walks over, and he's like, what you guys looking for? And they're sifting through, like, the ash and stuff, and the, the owner's like, what are you guys looking for? And the police say, you know, we're looking for Denise. Like, she was burnt down. Like, this place was burnt and she was in it. And the guy's like, yeah, uh, no. I burnt this property down two years ago because it was such an eyesore. And Tommy owned a knife collection and they believe, or he believes, I should say, that's why it was stabbing and they thought of stabbing as the murder. Because, again... They don't know where Denise is. For all they know, she could be alive and, like, running away. But it was enough. Nobody. That's fine. The confession was enough. The composite was enough. The jailhouse informant was enough. They were put in jail. So, as you can imagine, the police are feeling pretty hot right now because they got the murders in jail within, well, with a little bit over a year in time after her disappearance. And... A writer actually came to Ada, Robert Mayer. He wrote a book on the case, and I can't remember the name of the book. I will tell you guys at some point. I think it was like a dream in Ada, a dream in a small town, something like that. But he was interviewing Dennis Smith. And Dennis Smith, if you guys don't remember, he was the lead investigator in both cases. So he's asking him about Denise's case, just to know what's going on. And Dennis goes... I'm not worried about that case. Those guys are in jail. Let me tell you about another case I need to solve. And he goes, well, 
it is solved, but we can't do anything about it. And it's like, that is the dumbest statement I have ever heard. What? It's already solved, but you can't do anything about it? Like, no. No, sir. That's incorrect. So once the Denise case and Carl and Tommy are in jail and the Denise case is done, they just kind of turn on a dime and go back to Debbie's case, which is great. They should do that. They should get that done. Taking a step back and looking at it, the whole picture, you're like, no, you shouldn't be going on another case. You should go back and look at the other one. But in reality, they probably thought they got the guys and that case was done. So I get them like going on to the next case because this case, these two cases, as I mentioned before, were a year and a half apart. So it would make sense that you'd want to hop on back onto this one. So the investigators switched directions, like I said. And five months after Tommy and Carl were convicted of jail, January 20th, 80, uh, 1986, Denise's body is found. But it is found 30 miles from where Tommy said it was, and that is in Gertie, Oklahoma, 30 miles away from Ada. The body was there for a year and a half, so it was really just bones and some clothes frag fragments, but get this, guys. It was a shirt that was, like, red with these orangish, kind of reddish stripes, which Tommy said she was wearing a white shirt with lavender flowers. Not only did Tommy say that, but so did Carl. So, that's super weird and doesn't make any sense. How did two separate people come up with the same false information? Food for thought. So, Dennis, Denise, excuse me, sorry, Denise had a bullet, bullet wound, gunshot, there we go, I was trying to say bullet shot, but that didn't make sense, a gunshot wound to her head, and no stab wounds, not a single one. In 1989, Tommy and Carl were granted new trials because of the new evidence. They were both really excited for the new trials and all the new evidence that was coming in and how their stories didn't match, but they were just, instead of convicted for stabbing Denise to death, they were convicted guilty of shooting her to death. So, that's horrible. There was no new evidence. It was almost like there was no new trial. It was like somebody just decided to pull out the paper, the trial paperwork, quickly erase the word stab and put shoot or shot or however that would work grammatically. But Tommy and Carl were just completely crushed because they really thought that they had a chance. So going back to when the cops said they had, they had the people who killed Debbie, they just couldn't do it. Those guys were Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz. Now, Ron was a fam famous in a small town kind of thing. He was really great at baseball. He was actually like a baseball star. He was a jock. He partied a lot with girls. He was just, everyone know, knew him. And of course, like I said, he partied a lot. He was a party boy and didn't take care of himself, took a lot of drugs, and eventually... He threw out his shoulder. He went to rehab, I think, three times, but it never got better. He just kept hurting himself. And this just crushed him because everyone thought he was going to make it. And I believe he he did play in college. I believe he got maybe in the minor leagues or something like that. 
but he just, he didn't know what to do because it was his identity. And unfortunately, he just kind of spun out of control at that point. And then Dennis, he was actually a school teacher and a coach in Oklahoma. He got married to his high school sweetheart, who was a year older than him, and they had a beautiful little baby girl. He would actually travel the country to be a teacher, but eventually he kind of ended up in his hometown area, and his wife was actually shot on Christmas Eve, and that's what kind of brought his spiral out. So what happened was they were renting a home from a man, and his nephew came home, or came to their their rental home, I guess I should say, and he asked to use the phone. And the wife was like, okay, yeah, sure, go ahead, use the phone. She stepped out of the room for a little bit, but left the baby there. For a very, very brief amount of time, she walks back in, and she finds the guy doing something, as she describes as inappropriate, with the daughter, with the baby. And from what I gather, it wasn't, like, touching the baby, but maybe it was, like, swinging her around or something like that. Just something not appropriate, especially if you don't even know them. So she's like, you need to leave right now because that's not okay good for her to speak up and take care of her baby so the nephew leaves goes into the uncle's house goes into the gun cabinet grabs a shotgun and shoots her through the window so this ripped dennis apart rightfully so so much to the point where he couldn't take care of himself let alone a baby and good for him to have the wherewithal to realize that So he sent his daughter to his grandmother's house to take care of her, while Ron just kind of tried to fix himself. And that's when Ron, excuse me, Dennis, I hope I didn't say his name too many times, oh boy, if I screwed that up, Um, Dennis met Ron and Ada, and that's kind of how they became friends, because they were the only two people that really hung out with each other. Now Ron had previously been arrested for rape, but was never found guilty. And the police suspected him in other kind of violent offenses. Um, He also lived close to the crime scene, so he just kind of fell into the role of being this perfect person of interest, essentially. And I just want to apologize again because my mic sucks and my voice sucks today. And this is a really, like, important case that needs to be spoken about. So that's why I'm telling it now so I hope you guys can get past my voice and the microphone I'm gonna get a new one probably not in time for the next episode but I'm gonna get a new one and it'll be great next time so I just wanted to apologize again okay so the reason why Dennis was considered to be the second person is because he was Ron's friend I guess if that makes sense and if you can't tell I'm being super sarcastic and making a dumb face because that doesn't make any sense. Why would he be in trouble and be put out as a murderer murderer, um, because he's friends with someone? That doesn't make any sense. Why would that be okay? So they brought in Ron and Dennis. Uh, Ron was on March 1983 and Dennis was in June of 83. So this was before the Denise case. So it makes sense why the lead detective was like, well, we do have people, we just don't know what to do. Even though, like, you could look for other murderers, maybe? That's something that you can do instead of being set on these two guys. 
But you know what? Fritz didn't tell anyone where he was that night, and he did call in sick the next day. Not that that's enough to kill some or to convict someone, but it doesn't look great. You know, like don't be doing stuff that you don't want to admit to other people, especially to the police. But you know, I say that now, but I'm sure there are things that I'm embarrassed about. So whatever, it's fine. But it's not fine because this is not okay. Now. The reason why they couldn't get Ron or Dennis is because at the crime scene, there was a bloody palm print on the side, like a partial palm print on the side of the wall. And it didn't match Debbie, it didn't match Dennis, and it didn't match Don. Ron. Hmm. Ron. So that was a huge problem for the police because that would mean there was a fourth person in this scenario and that didn't make any sense so what they decided to do was exhume Debbie's body four years later that's just idiotic to me and who knows I could be totally wrong but I feel like there would be nothing to compare it to you know and the worst part is that Peppy had to sign off on this papers and it ripped her apart she did not want to do this and she's like you know what I'll do it because the investigators basically like pushed her and pushed her and pushed her and they're like don't you want to find the murder murderers who did this to your daughter and she's like yeah I guess but on one condition I want to be there I want to give her one last kiss one last hug one last goodbye so playing devil's advocate here I can see why they wouldn't bring her to it because spoiler alert they did it without um calling Peggy Peppy excuse me um she was probably like skeletal at that point you know like Denise Haraway she was skeletal after after the year and a half I don't know how it is if she because Debbie got embalmed and if that like really really slows down the process of decay I don't know but I just imagine that she probably shouldn't have seen her after four years but that leads me to my point before, that means there's no print to help in this scenario. Plus, they took a palm print. They have a palm print on file of Debbie's before they, like, put her in the ground. So it doesn't make any sense. But the second time they analyzed that palm print, which, by the way, guys, that stuff is literally just holding it really close to your face and using your untrained eye or I guess technically they could have their eyes trained, whatever, to see if it matches. Not great science, guys. So they found it to be a match, which means there was no other person. It was just Debbie, Ron, and Dennis, supposedly, and they took him to court. While in court, someone was giving a testimony and just talking about how Ron, they overheard Ron saying stuff about Debbie and her murder, and you can just hear Ron screaming at the, like, just full yell, that's not true, I never said that, I never murdered her. And it was so much to the point where he got kicked out of the courtroom. Now that was before the actual court, I think that was a hearing to move into court, where like you say if you're guilty or not guilty and move into court. I'm not super familiar with the exact proceedings and processes of court, so I wouldn't quote myself on that, 
but he this this was not his official like sentencing um going to the jury having a lawyer with him now after he was detained he was asked and denied any involvement in the case absolutely none but after he was jailed he said he had a dream about the case just like Tommy did and same as Tommy they used it as evidence in the corn in the in the case and he said it was a dream I did not do that so Ron Ron um, like I said he took a lot of drugs and I don't know if that pushed this but he would hear voices in his head he was very mentally ill and the scene he described was not accurate in his statement quote-unquote dream so but they used it in court because why the heck not I guess Dennis Fritz was found guilty on April 12th, 1988. They said that they found hair on a washcloth that matched Fritz. That was kind of like what really sold the jury on him being guilty. But he was one vote away from the death penalty. So he was convicted life in prison. And because it was he wasn't convicted of a capital offense, he only got one appeal with a lawyer. And of course, it's a small town. He was a teacher, didn't have a lot of money. He couldn't afford a lawyer on his own. Now, Ron's trial started April 27th, so just after um, Dennis's. They also found hair that was supposedly consistent with Williamson. There was also a witness... Andrea Hardcastle, she was brought in, and she said that she lived between Ron and Debbie's house. And she said that Ron had aggressively molested her. And she said she never came forward because she was so scared until Debbie's trial. And this was, like, a long, long time uh, before Debbie's murder. So there was another witness, Glenn Gore. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, but Debbie worked at the coach light. And she was working that night. And Glenn was at the coach light with a bunch of his friends. And he got a drink. He got up to get a drink. And he saw Debbie and Ron talking. And as Glenn walks by, Debbie goes, save me. And if you couldn't hear that because of my crappy voice right now, I said, save me in a whisper. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still upset that I haven't started feeling better. So I guess... What Glenn said was he grabbed Debbie and just started dancing with her on the floor, and he quote-unquote saved her. She told him that Ron was bugging her, and that's why she asked him to rescue her, essentially. Then there was another witness, Terry and Mike Carpenter, and they said that they saw Debbie arguing with some guy at her car. Then the final witness was Terry Holland who testified against Ron, saying she overheard him speaking about the murder. Now, Ron was a convicted, Ron was convicted of murder, and he was put on death row. And this is absolutely heartbreaking. While he was in jail, he would actually send letters to his sister, begging his sister to help him. It was like, please help me. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is, it's horrible here. He just could not take it because this was back in the 80s. There was no help for mental illnesses or any kind of thing like that. 
So he was just left there with his sickness to just rot in prison, essentially. It was just, it was heartbreaking to see those letters. And in the letters, you can really see how his mental health was deteriorating because his handwriting was actually really nice in some of the letters. And then in others, it was just almost illegible. So it was just hard to hear that and see what he had to say. So right now, we have Tommy in jail, Tommy Ward. We have Carl Fontenelle in jail for Denise Haraway's case. And now we have Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz in jail. And that's where I'm going to leave you because this is going to be a two-part episode or two-part case because I am only halfway through all of my freaking information because this case is so intense and so just important to get out there. So I'm going to leave you at that. I will be posting the next episode, I swear on my life. I will be posting it on Monday. I promise you that. I will probably probably record it right now after this episode. So my voice is going to sound the same and my microphone is going to sound the same. But once I'm done with the second episode, I will go on Amazon and buy a new microphone. So I am so sorry for the quality, but the quality of the case is good. The quality of my voice and my microphone is very poor. So I'm so sorry. I hope you guys can bear with me. I hope you guys listen to this case and really get something out of it because these two girls were so amazing and their story deserves to be heard. So I hope you guys just stick it out and listen. If you want to see pictures on the case, you can go to the YDWK podcast on Instagram and see that or on Facebook with the, I think it's You Don't Want to Know or... YDWK, no, it's definitely You Don't Want to Know podcast, the page. So I'll, I'll post the same pictures. You guys can see it on there too. Otherwise, if you have case suggestions um, or you just want to tell me how you hope my voice starts to feel better because I need that in my life right now, you can go to ydwkpodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, thanks for listening and 